It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Do you believe that today? It's good to be here. Oftentimes, I think it gets lost on us, the goodness of what it means to be together. As we inevitably prioritize our own experience at times, what we feel in the moment, how we experience things, how we are provided for, first and foremost, it can be quick and easy to forget how good it is, but not goodness based on our own, goodness based on what it means to be with one another. And so as we think through the dynamics of what Paul introduces to us this morning, would we reflect not just on our own experience, but remember that we sit here not as individuals, but as a community of faith. Excited to share the word with us this morning. I was reminded this week of the immense privilege it is not just to preach the word, but to even read the words that are given. On Friday night with our youth group, we read through a portion of scripture together, and I was honest my reflection of my own journey when it comes to Scripture has not always been a profound document to me, has not always taken primary importance and place in my life, if I was honest. But God has done something in my life to a place where he's given me a courage to be open in the reading of Scripture, open to my own unknowings, my own lack of ability to answer all the questions that are before me but a faith and confidence to know that the one who spoke the word before is continuing to speak the word today. And so we're going to read this text here in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to stand and we'll read a prayer together today as a reminder that sometimes when we come to scripture, when we come with our own preconceived notions, we can miss the point before the scripture is even read. And so we read this scripture as a community each week as a reminder to keep our minds and hearts open. So would you stand with us this morning and read this prayer? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Paul says this to Timothy. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But for those who want to be rich, fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, speaking to Timothy, he says, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate 
made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about in the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in the unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. For those who are in the present age are rich. Command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those of you that don't know, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see those of you who I do know and even greater to see those faces that I don't. As a simple reminder that sometimes there's this um, fear, perhaps, of those that are in communities for a long time. We see somebody maybe we don't recognize, and we think, well, I don't want to go say hi to them in case they've been here for several weeks, and I have missed the mark. But if I could suggest something to you this morning as one of your pastors ask you to have the courage to go introduce yourself, or we'd rather people feel the welcomeness that we know is embedded here at Skyview, right? We would rather them feel that and know that. And so those of you that are with us for the first time, we welcome you. Those of you that have joined us recently, we welcome you. And those of you that have been with us for a long time, welcome as well. It's also great um, for me to be here this morning. For those of you that haven't gotten the opportunity to meet, I have family in town, which is exciting. My in-laws are here. So if you guys give them a big Canadian welcome, that'd be great. Robin and Clarence. Yeah. Great, great to have them here. Um, great for a number of number of reasons. This text this week, as, as I've been reading it, it, it paused. It made me pause to ask the question, "What my perfect day is?" I don't know about you. Maybe some of you, your perfect day involves waking up early before the sunrise and drinking a cup of coffee, or maybe for some of you, it involves no such thing and setting no alarm and waking up whenever it's convenient. We can fall on any end of that spectrum. But I think we all have things that make us comfortable, and they become sort of anchor points in a rough week, right? At the end of a rough day, we know, well, at least I have that thing coming to me. At least I have that awaiting me, perhaps, when I get home. At least I have that maybe at the end of a week, a month, a year. Keeps us grounded, keeps us focused, maybe in the roughest of times. I think that today our text invites us to explore this invitation This invitation made by Jesus to a way of life that does not often promote first and foremost what I prefer to the front, but in fact invites me to consider how my own personal contentment, the things that make me feel at ease, the things that make me feel provided for, is rather rooted in the provision for those around me, that perhaps when others have what they need, that truly finds contentment. In my own heart. This month we've been exploring the teachings of Paul, looking to his understanding of testimony, 
We've used this phrase, living testimony. As we've heard in the text the last two weeks from Paul, one who was radically transformed. There's no denying that a change happened in his heart and mind. The one who went from a persecutor of Christians, that was so moved by the transforming grace of God, that the life that he lived pointed to something that would birth communities all throughout the ancient world. For we understand that the way that we live our lives does not just shape our own experience, but it also shapes the way people see us and see the end to which we are pointing. We asked the tough questions a couple weeks ago, asking ourselves, to what end does our life point? What sort of future is imagined through the way that I live my life? For those around us, if our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers were to ask based simply on the way that we lived our lives to describe the God that we served, what would they say? So we bring all of these things to the text today, trusting that God would give us renewed vision and understanding for the way that we are called to live. In these closing remarks to Timothy, at the end of this letter, taking seriously his role as mentor, Paul delivers what he could say is the most important of things. In the wrapping up of this message to his young mentee, he says, of all the things that I have said, this is of primary importance. So what's immediately clear is that Paul understands the love of riches only leads to ruin and destruction. This phrase, love of money, has two really important ties that will help give breadth to what Paul says here. Now, our, Caleb, our intern, who I introduced a couple weeks, if you don't know, he's a Greek scholar, so I'm going to try to impress him this morning with one word. Tell me if I pronounce it right or not. This word that's used here, philogyria, did I get it right? Did I impressed? Okay, I got some points with Caleb this morning. Has these ties not only to the love of money, but has ties to the love that one would have for their brother or sister or family member. This sort of phileo love, maybe we could say and understand. It's, what's important about it is that it reminds us that love has options about where it is to be directed. The love that is here is not unique to the love of money, but is simply asks us the question, what are the things that we love? A second connection that's important in this word is it links us back to one of the earliest commands given to the nation of Israel. As they were told not to covet their neighbor's house, their neighbor's way of life, their family, their whole existence. Both of these things help us deepen Paul's meaning. For what he says here is that money can create this false ideal in any of us. Whether we have or do not, it creates an ideal of status and position in relation to those around us. It can propel a sense that just like family and friends can love us, maybe so too can my money love me back. Maybe so too can my money support me in the good and the bad. That if we love our money well enough, well maybe it'll sustain me at the end of the day. But I think this text invites us to consider what true sustenance looks like. In recent history, poor translations of this have led us to assume Paul simply means riches to be the root of all evil, when in fact he says something far deeper, that what Paul indicates here is not that riches are the issue, but the bond one might create to them. Much like we can rely on relationships with our loved ones, 
so too can we put our trust in money. The message for those among us, both with and without, is an indication that while money can promote a certain sense of security, status, and position, while it at times can present an image of self-reliance where we don't need anybody else, I don't need anybody else to do the things that I feel like I need to do, at the end of the day will ultimately fail us. Moving on, Paul indicates there to be another way of life. One not defined by this sort of myth of self-reliance and selfish desire to be richer, higher, better than those around us. Rather, it is to be defined by things like righteousness, faith, gentleness. To be defined by behaviors much like a right relationship with God. A belief that God would provide all that he asked for us to do. A behavior that requires an attentiveness to the needs of those around us. It is assured that this way of life, instead of running on empty, is eternal. It is sustaining. And Paul would say it is the only thing that ultimately leads to true riches. This life, as he later indicates, is the only one that really is life. A bold statement, but one not unearned from a person like Paul, who has explored many avenues to find life for himself first and foremost, but at the end of the day stands as one who lives in a testimony to believe that this life is the only one that is real. He reveals what many of us know on a deep level but seldom have the courage to admit. At the core, we know that we were not created to be individuals, primarily grasping first for what is ours, only concerned with where we might land at the end of the day. For this life that truly is life, the one that Paul has begun to experience in his own life, the life to which God calls us, is the life that was lived by the person of Jesus. It is this sacrificial way that led Jesus to care for the marginalized, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry. It was also this way that ultimately led him to the cross, a place that put on full display what it meant for him to prioritize others' lives above his own. He goes on to identify this life not as a gift, but rather something we the, not as a gift, something we receive without action, but rather something to be pursued. Something that requires what he calls this good confession. In other words, the grace that God gives us is something we are invited to respond to, something we've talked about time and time again, but often need reminder. That we know this. As many of us during our life have responded to Christ's invitation, maybe some of you have followed the Lord's leading in a vocation change, pursued a relationship, or moved away from one, changed a behavior because you felt a compulsion from Christ that he was calling you to something new. These very altars that we have here that often get tucked away and perhaps forgotten stand as a reminder of the continued call of Christ to take up our cross 
and follow. Not only is this good confession attributed to Timothy, but Paul also links it back to the passion narrative. Specifically, the moment in which Jesus is tried by Pontius Pilate. And interestingly, if you go back to the Gospels and explore what this good confession really is, you notice that Jesus only ever actually says three words to Pilate. You say so. When Pilate questions his own authority. So I have a sense here that what Paul is referring to is something other than the words that Jesus says and more the behavior and the way that it was received by Pilate. What makes a confession good? Those of you who are parents or educators, you know that even the best of messages can be poorly received, if not given, with gentleness, with assuredness, that you too believe the conviction or value that you hope to imbue on those behind. That we know this tension found in all things, that it doesn't rely simply on the power of the message, but also tethers itself to the way that it is delivered to those who might hear. In our Western societies, we elevate one's individual experience as supreme, worthy of all attention. I think that this reduces a confession like the one that Paul describes here simply to something that I say, something that I believe, with no regard for how it is perceived by others. But the synoptic gospel authors are intentional not just to include the words of Jesus, but the response of Pilate. For it's noted here, because of what Jesus did, Pilate was amazed. And later in the story, when Jesus is put before the Jews next to Barabbas on trial, Pilate refers to him as the Messiah, a term only reserved for those some believed had been anointed for a divine purpose. This small addition in text has not left my attention all week as I have wondered what happened to Pilate in that moment. That we don't know for certain, we don't know where his life ended up going, but we do know this, that he was changed in that day. Something was moved in his mind and his heart. This inclusion is a powerful reminder that the way we are called to live, the way of life that shuns selfish desires and a pursuit of self-advancement, while seemingly insignificant to us, has the power to change even the hardest of hearts, even people like Pilate. And I wonder for a moment what sort of relationship Paul had with Pilate. For the very fact that he includes them in this letter indicates something. It indicates that maybe Paul, based in his own life experience, remembered that the grace of God was boundless. But if God could change the heart and mind of somebody like Paul, maybe he could change somebody like Pilate too. While probably, he probably never knew him, assuredly he knew the story, and maybe he had developed a grace for others that many would have considered lost causes, places where God's grace could no longer move and work. So Paul lays out what it looks like to bind oneself to the love of riches. He implores Timothy to shun this way of life and now introduces the alternative. 
and rather than being a lifestyle defined by power, privilege, and selfishness. It's defined by one simple yet subversive practice, generosity. Generosity, a practice that pays attention not simply to my own needs, but to the needs of those around me, that says in moments where I might be led to believe that there's only enough for me, leads me to a faith that says perhaps there's more than I could ever need. And there's in fact more than any all of us could need as one. And rather than this life, Paul invites him to do good, to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share, for this is said to be the good foundation for the future. For it is in this way of life that Paul finds a life that really is life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment, and then we'll respond by coming to the table today. If you didn't receive elements when you walked in this morning and would like to, simply raise your hand and we'll have one of our ushers come find you. But here in a moment after we sing the song, I'll lead you with our cups and our communion elements. We'll walk through what this looks like for our text today. But I think that in this text, intrinsically is this idea that true riches don't always look like the way that we imagine them to be. That the contentment that Paul refers to is not contingent on my own provision, but on a way of life in which all those who have share and all those who need are cared for. A world in which all those who have would share and all those who need would be cared for. This reality which Jesus often refers to as the kingdom, a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. This place that can often seem unimaginable to us with these ways of life that often call for us to prioritize our own pursuits, that prioritize our own futures. This place of generosity leads me to a place where I'm forced to open my hands and say, God, you have provided and you will provide. For the many needs around me that seem insurmountable, overwhelming, impossible to attain or address, I remember, like Paul, the grace that was given, the grace that was provided, not to be an ends in and of itself, but a grace that took Paul somewhere and invites us to go to the very same place. Let's sing this song together today. I invite you to stand as we sing, and I'll come up and we'll walk through communion together.